Welcome to Slice of Life Sciences Real Estate. Thanks everybody for tuning in again for uh, this week's episode. I'm thrilled um, and excited to be with a friend of mine, Dan Guadagnoli, um, who is a director at the Fallon Company. The Fallon Company is uh, a privately held commercial real estate owner and developer, headquartered in Boston. It founded in 1993, Dan. Um, owner and developer of transformative mixed-use environments with over $6 billion um, in developments in real estate, representing, I think, more than 6 million square feet now. Um, HQ'd in Boston, like I said, but you guys are growing, um, which we'll talk a little bit about with now offices in Charlotte, Raleigh, and uh, Nashville now, the latest. So, Dan, thank you for joining. Um, here, Dave. That was an unreal pronunciation of my last name. <laughs> I actually had to stumble on it for a second, but uh, glad I got it right. I am Italian as well, so a little bit easier. Um, <laughs> well, to get started, I, I always kind of like to dive into just you as a person, what your background is, and get into what you're doing now. But do you mind just sharing where you're from, where you went to school, um, kind of what you thought you were going to be doing growing up. Before. Absolutely. Um, great to be here. Uh, I'm from the area, kind of like yourself. They grew up outside of Boston, uh, from Framingham, Massachusetts, and uh, always grew up playing sports. I, just like yourself, I uh, was a big athlete growing up and um, went to school locally as well, Bentley University. Yep. Studied economics and finance there, and then I was playing football and decided to do a fifth year, so I got my master's in finance um, that fifth year. And I think at that point, I kind of realized um, real estate was an area I wanted to go into. Um, there's a lot of things that drew me to the industry, but always liked the built environment, always thought that um, neighborhoods and kind of the, the character of a, of a city or a town was always something that intrigued me. So um, that part of it, kind of the design part of it, but also the investment part of it um, were things that caught my eye when I was in college and uh, unfortunately wasn't able to get into the industry right out of school. I actually started at PwC, um, the big four accounting firm. Yeah. I was in the management consulting division. You're good with your numbers. It helped, <laughs> it helped with the spreadsheets. <laughs> consulting division and you know early on knew that I was going to try to make a pivot into real estate and funny enough my office actually moved from the financial district in Boston to Seaport uh, right as I started working there clo close to um, I think it was probably a couple of years into my job there but uh, that was a funny transition because my job now is at a company right across the yeah, street, right across the street. Yeah. company um, and so I've been able to see the seaport just explode as you know one of the hottest submarkets literally in the country. Um, so it's been a, an interesting case study. And, um, been at the Fallon Company ever since and, and loved every minute of it. And what was the, uh, I guess, the transition from from PwC to the Fallon Company? And, and what did what were you? I guess when you started at the Fallon Company, what were you doing? Kind of how has your role evolved? Yeah, so over the years. Sure. When I moved over here, we were in a position where we were, were starting to look at other markets outside of Boston, 
the company had done, a t like you alluded to, a ton of work in the city of Boston, um, some very major projects, the Convention Center Hotel, uh, several large apartment buildings, um, and obviously Fan Pier, which is a 20-acre site in, in Seaport and um, where Vertex is headquarters is and a, and a bunch of other firms. So when I came onto the firm, we were actually looking to start to diversify in other markets. Um, and so part of my job was to think through what other markets we may want to target and, and help kind of source opportunities there, evaluate opportunities. Um, and it was a great learning experience for me to just kind of cut my teeth and get, get right into the financials um, and, on and, development and, opportunities in new markets. Yeah, and, and since it's new, completely foreign to me, how do you even go about, like, when you're tasked with trying to find a potential new market to, to kind of develop your first asset or whatever it is, what do you even yeah, look for and where do you even start? Yeah, so you start very macro level, and you have to kind of pick your pick your bets, if you will. So if you're looking everywhere, you're not looking anywhere. Obviously, you have to be focused. Um, but obviously, you start with where's the population growth happening, and where are the jobs? Um, a lot of that comes down to geography. Some of it comes down to um, major drivers that are intrinsic to an area that won't change so in our market in the Boston area we obviously have the unbelievable higher ed landscape in the medical landscape right so the colleges we have here um, the medical and research institutions those aren't going anywhere um, so you look for similar themes and what we've picked up on and it's no secret is that a lot of people who are in markets like Boston New York San Francisco you know, those gateway markets a lot of firms and people have moved into markets that are have a lower cost of business, lower cost to do business, um, markets that have really favorable political landscapes. So you've seen a ton of population growth in Texas, yep. Florida, the Carolinas, um, obviously Nashville, and there's a handful of other markets I could allude to. And a lot of that's driven by um, the, the tax political landscape and you know, how friendly they are to businesses. Some of it's driven by just quality of life metrics, right? Like, yeah. How's the weather? Yeah. Um, how's the culture there? How do people um, experience their day-to-day -day lives? And so a lot of people have moved to Charlotte. A lot of people have moved to Raleigh. And, um, you know, those were markets that we identified and we felt like had a long runway. Um, and when you actually look at it from an investment standpoint and you look at the returns that you're able to generate in a market like Boston, and then you compare it to Raleigh, Charlotte, some of these other growth markets, you start to see a pretty compelling narrative that obviously it's higher risk when you're going into another market that may be a little bit less proven, uh, but there's better potential for returns. So part of it was driven by that and that those markets had more opportunities just from a financial perspective. And, and is is your mission from that standpoint of are the investments you make whether opportunistic core investments value add is that pretty similar throughout the markets you're in from Boston Charlotte Raleigh or Nashville or is it Charlotte's going to be more risky than Boston and, and we know that going in etc 
So our firm has a, we're, we're a nimble firm, so we're able to kind of pick and choose what type of investments um, we want to pursue. But generally, we're really a development firm at our core. Yep. So most of what we do is you know, pretty large scale mixed use development, um, normally has multiple phases associated with it. So it's normally not just one building, it's normally multiple. Um, but to answer your question, Dave, you know, I think at any given point in time, in any given market, we're able to kind of reassess what the best opportunity may be and, and kind of tweak our perspective um, as needed. So we're, we're lucky in that regard. We're a smaller firm that has, um, you know, very kind of nimble culture to us. Uh, but the way we went into those markets was really to bring that mixed-use urban type of, um, you know, large-scale mixed-use development to bring that into markets that may, may not have been as sophisticated at the time. Now you're seeing a lot of capital flood into those markets, so they're very, um, you know, they're, they're prime-time markets, there's no doubt about it. But uh, what we do largely is, is opportunistic, um, large-scale development. Wait, wait, for, to, to, like, kind of piggyback on the nimble aspect, obviously there are trends that go on in commercial real estate every year, every so many years, and you see a lot of what appears to be reactive kind of decisions being made, whether it's like lab conversions, whatever it is, whatever the hot topic is at that moment. I think it's super interesting and it's one of the best case studies I've ever heard is, is the Vertex case study for you guys. Um, just, uh, well, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it, it wasn't, in my opinion, or from what I know as adaptable and flexible kind of going with the flow, but you guys were really trailblazers in, in that decision of what went on in the seaport. Um, for something like that, Vertex was in Kendall Square, the epicenter of biosciences in, in the world. And you guys had a development at Van Pier and attracted them to basically move from Kendall Square to their new headquarters, which is still there in the seaport. Um, what goes into that master plan? How, like, how many different types of people are you talking to? I imagine it's not just the six people in your team and, and at the found company. There's, there's obviously a lot of government folks, uh, different groups and, and and public leaders that you have to kind of get the buy-in to make a Vertex want to move to the seaport and be essentially the first lab tenant in the seaport, which is now the next big thing. Yeah. So that's a big question. I'll try yeah, to Yeah, I don't even know what, was, the, uh, what the specific question was. <laughs> what are your thoughts? The, uh, so that was before my time, obviously, when Vertex came to the seaport. Um, and that was definitely a defining moment. Um, what the found, you know, Joe Fallon founded the company, obviously, and he had a very, just an unbelievable team of people that really were trailblazers at the time. And the cool thing, Dave, is that that mindset that you're describing has stayed with the company in terms of the, the willingness to kind of see beyond what's happening today and try to, to make bets on what might happen in the future. Um, so it's always a give and take between, you know, looking ahead to what might be, but also recognizing that the capital markets are 
they they are looking at certain product types today for a reason, right? Like uh, financial partners and banks love industrial because industrial is obviously a proven asset class right now. But there's going to be something else in the future that will be very attractive that somebody else is thinking of right now that may not be uh, in vogue today. Um, so you're, you're always balancing between what is proven and what um, you know, what's reactionary versus what's kind of proactive. Um, but to answer your question about what goes into a master plan, that's probably my favorite part about real estate is just the complexity of what goes into choosing a site and taking a project from parking lots um, yeah. with no activity to like a amazing neighborhood, which is what Seaport is right now. Um, and absolutely, so government officials are, are a huge piece of it. It's, it's not necessarily just the government officials, but it's just understanding what the political landscape is at any given uh, moment, right? So that ties into zoning, that ties into um, the community and, and you know, who's active in the community and who the stakeholders are for the project. So when you look at a site, you literally need to think through who are the major stakeholders that I need to speak with to understand you know, what the development potential is for this area and what's likely to either support or impede future development. In Boston, and the other thing, Dave, it's different in every city. So in Boston, most sites need to be rezoned. Most sites require a very complex approvals process in order to be able to actually build a project, right? So if I go find a site somewhere in Boston, I could be looking at a two-year period before I can actually have a permitted site that's ready for construction. In other cities, like our experience in Raleigh and Charlotte is a lot different. Um, those cities had recent, uh, recently underwent um, updates basically to their zoning code. So they had already thought through that you know these parcels in downtown Raleigh are going to be 40-story buildings that are that can accommodate residential, office, hotel, etc. So you buy a site like that, and it's a lot smoother of a process because you're buying something that's already entitled. Yeah. Um, so it depends on the city. So some cities require more kind of due diligence on the political and entitlement front. So we call that you know entitlement risk a lot of the times, especially in Boston when there's a um, a long period and a complex process for getting a project from where you are today to an approved project ready for construction. Um, when you look at a site though, that you know, that's one piece of it is kind of your political and your approvals process and how that's gonna function, what the risks are there. Obviously you've gotta design something and you've gotta know that it's marketable. So typically early on when we're evaluating a site, we'll bring in an architect usually who puts together kind of a few quick schemes that we think may work for the site and that's obviously a collaborative process. So generally, you look at a site as a developer, and you have an idea in your mind what uses you think will work, right? So you buy, a, you look at a site, and you might think this would be a great lab site, but we'd also love to do residential here. So you then might bring an architect on board. This is before you've acquired it. This is during your kind of evaluation process. This all happens very quickly. And you might bring an architect on board and have them throw together a couple different schemes in a matter of five or ten days 
that help you understand what type of development you might be able to do on the site, right? So you do that, you're talking to the community and stakeholders to understand you know, what the appetite is uh, from a kind of a community slash political perspective. You're probably talking to an attorney, uh, a land use attorney, depending upon the site, to understand what the entitlement risk is and what the approvals process would be will be like. And you might need to bring in different, you know, sub sub consultants like a, a civil engineer or an environmental engineer, because you want to evaluate the environmental risk of the site if it's in a contaminated area. Um, so there's a lot of different players and. Yeah. The job of the developer at a high level is to reduce risk as time goes on. So you start out and there's a ton of risk uh, before you've done any of this stuff, right? And you're you're basically trying to check these boxes to eliminate risks. Um, but at a high level, there has to be a business plan that you as the developer, as the entrepreneur really, believe in with the site. So you love the site because it's located in an area that it's on the path of growth in a market that has great job growth, population growth, and you feel like you can attract residents to live there, office users, lab users, retail users, what have you, uh, because of the location and because of some intrinsic value that the site provides. And then your job from there is to evaluate what the right development program is and you know, reduce risk and, and start to understand the property more and more and more as you dig into it. For 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 a for a long-winded question, an abstract question I asked. That was a great complex response. It's a long-winded answer. Yeah. Out of curiosity, like the the business plan you mentioned from something like Vertex, which I think was in 2011 or so, just around that time. To now, you're just in the same exact neighborhood of Stone's Throw Away, the Mass Mutual development. Is that part of the original business plan to kind of have a building, whether it's office or whatever it is, in that plot of land? Or is that kind of go in phases and you assess every so three years, five years, or whatever it is? A little bit of both, but at the beginning, when you first started out, you definitely need to kind of put a stake in the ground in terms of how the buildings are going to lay out on site. So it might change a little bit over time as you react to changing market dynamics. But something like that, um, there's so much complexity in terms of how infrastructure um, connects between the buildings, how the parking works between the buildings. We have some interconnected parking garages, how the roadways work. I mean, there's a lot of coordination there, obviously, with the city um, and even at the state level because it's a big project and it affects so many different stakeholders, um, both public and private. So something like that, Dave, you're definitely establishing kind of your boxes, if you will, at the beginning of the project as to where buildings are going to go. And when you get it approved, you have approvals for certain uses. So Fan Pier the project you're alluding to, certain parcels are zoned for residential, others are zoned for commercial. So if we, if we had to change some a use on a particular site, there's a mechanism to do it, but we'd have to go back through an approvals process in order to do that. 
so the vision, a lot of it was you know, at the outset of the project, you hope that things unfold the way they did. And once you had that momentum with Vertex that, that kind of established this neighborhood, the domino is starting to fall. Yeah. And now each asset can play offline. That building with Ma the Mass Mutual site is a site that you know, would be one of the best sites in the city because yeah. of how much this neighborhood is just. Um, just exploded, right? It's 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 incredible the amount of jobs that have been created in this area and all the companies that have moved here. Yeah, and like, and like you said, each 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 development just enhances the other development as well because it really forms that neighborhood. Uh, out of curiosity, what just because Vertex is I think over a million square feet, Mass Mutual's three hundred something thousand square feet. What's the difference between? Or when you're talking to a vertex or a mass mutual or someone of that size, a true anchor tenant, between a build a build to rent versus a build to own, that the, the actual company might say, we want ownership in this development versus we're just going to partner with you to develop it and then rent it. Good question. I, I think you know, build to own is probably an outlier developer's perspective we're we're betting on a site and our job is to attract tenants to rent a, to rent a building that we're ultimately providing right that's that's the product we're providing and there's a rent that we think works um, based upon the budget required to deliver a product that we think is a top of market product so in the case of the, the rent situation if you had a tenant come and say, so, so I'll just back up, right? If, if we bought a plot of land and we're marketing a building, first of all, we would always start from a place, we would normally start from a place to assume it's a multi-tenanted building. It's pretty rare to you know, start permitting a plot of land and then have a tenant come by and say, we want the whole building. That's a dream scenario. So you're starting from a place to say, how can we market this building in a flexible way to a variety of users. So in the event that we have multiple tenants, we're able to accommodate all the tenants, and obviously they're gonna be renting in that case. If you've got one big user that says, we want the whole building, we love this location, and they're not very sensitive to, to cost or, or rent, they just want the location, they're, they're gonna have more influence over the design um, and just more influence in general um, compared to a multi-tenant situation, obviously, where you as the landlord need to ma maintain more control because the, the building is going to be rented to more users. In a situation where a tenant wants to not only take the whole building but also own the building, they would have a lot more influence. Um, and there's different ways to structure that. You might, you might, you might have a structure, Dave, where the tenant rents from you but then has a right of first offer or right of first refusal which means if the on a sale which if means you were, if you were looking to sell it that they would right, have if you were looking to sell uh, exactly exactly if you were looking to sell in the future they'd have the opportunity to buy it um, or you might have a scenario where they buy it right out of the gate and in that scenario the developer you're charging a fee regardless right that's a development fee um, so that's more of a, what we call a fee development where you're kind of building it on their behalf yep. and they're going to be owning it 
and you charge a fee. And you may also do what's called a cost plus, where you may say that if the budget is, you know, X, you might sell it for X plus some sort of return metric. Um, so you kind of you kind of predetermine what that sale price is based upon a budget that obviously everyone has to agree upon and maybe in flux for a period of time. But once you nail down that budget, the tenant may you may have an agreement with the tenant or the I guess future owner uh, to buy it from from the developer at a certain predetermined price point. A lot of that hinges on the source of the capital in terms of the developer's capital stack and how they finance the project to begin with. Because a lot of developers have, you know, third-party equity backing them. And it could take a variety of forms, but that third-party equity, a limited partner, a lot of times you call, call them LPs, that money might have a certain requirement for return on investment. So it's not always as simple as, the developer being able to make a, a quick call. There's a, a lot. There's often capital backing the developer that has their own set of requirements. Uh, so, the, so the moral of the story is, in most cases, it's a you, you, you market a product that can be rented to multiple yep. tenants. And in most cases, that's what you end up with. If an anchor tenant comes by that wants to take the whole building, it's a great scenario for the developer. You, you're usually going to give them more control in terms of design and, and other uh, influence on the project. With that, I guess, in mind and that experience, what are you working on now and kind of what what's in the pipeline? I mean, I'm sure you can't say everything specifically, but what's, what's exciting you and keeping you busy these days? Yeah, so in, in the... Uh, in the satellite offices that we've opened up, we've got a lot of exciting stuff going on. Um, the last few years, we've kind of been teeing up various opportunities in Charlotte, Raleigh, and now Nashville. We opened up an office in Nashville about a year ago now. Um, so working on some deals um, kind of in their early stages in Nashville and, and also in Boston. So trying to grow the pipeline there. Fan Pier, our, pro our project in Boston that we've been talking about does have one more site, one more parcel. Um, so like you said, Mass Mutual wrapped up, but we also have another parcel on Fan Pier. Um, so those two markets, we're a little, little bit far, farther out for our next kind of large scale project. Uh, but in Charlotte and Raleigh, we've got two great projects that are in our pipeline. Uh, the one in Charlotte's called Center South. It's a mostly a, a residential development, actually. It's about 745 units of resident of uh, apartment units, a large office building as well. And then in Raleigh, we're actually underway right now with a uh, 300,000 square foot office building in downtown Raleigh, which it was obviously terrible timing with COVID um, kind of hit right, right during our construction period. But the team's been very resilient and the building um, seems to have you know, we, we had a pre-lease, luckily, for 50% of the building, so that's... That helps with the stress of COVID. <laughs> it helps with the stress. Leasing's <laughs> ongoing, and that's a huge focus area for us. And we'll look to tee up more projects in that market for sure. We have a second phase of that project teed up right now. 
uh, which we think will be a residential component. And we're still looking for more opportunities. Both those markets, Char Charlotte, Raleigh, and Nashville, there's no shortage of growth. So we're kind of working between managing what we have in our current pipeline and executing that, and then looking for future opportunities. And like we talked about at the beginning of our call, trying to think of you know what might be novel or what might be out there that not a lot of people are thinking of right now, and how can we you know maybe go against the grain a little bit to find opportunities that um, you know others might not might not be right now. We're, we're running up on time here, but uh, one question: If you could, what's one word? If you if you could describe the Fallon Company in one word, what would it be? Wow, that's, that's a tough question. On the spot. Glad you're on the receiving end of it. I would say passionate. I like that. It's, uh, it's just a really fun place to work. People are. Everyone in this office is so passionate about what they do. And they genuinely just love coming into work. So remind, it almost reminds me of being on a sports team where you're, where everyone's, you know, everyone's rowing in the same direction for a common goal. It, 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 it feels that way. Um, and it's hard to create that culture in the corporate world. It's just, it's tough. I mean, you know how tough it is. Uh, and, 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 and the, you don't get as sore as playing Saturday morning basketball, so <laughs> that's also a plus. <laughs> but, but it scratches that itch for sure, that competitive, um, passionate, um, you know, that, that whole aspect of of work is, is something that I hadn't experienced in my previous jobs, and it's really cool to be in a place like that, and um, I think it's something that continuously makes work different every day. It's never it's never the same every day. We're always looking for more opportunities and pushing ourselves. So I would say passionate for sure. Great. That was a great answer. Um, all right. Well, great, Dan. Thank you so much. Uh, really uh, means a lot for you to jump on. Had some great content. So uh, everyone, um, hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned for next week. And uh, Dan, thanks again. Thank you, Dave. This was great. We'll talk soon. See ya. Take care.